As you probably know, if you have read the bulletin or heard the announcement, this week we launch into our annual biblical counseling conference. And for that reason, I have decided to break the series to the Gospel of Mark just for this one week uh, to share some thoughts on the sufficiency of Scripture. And because we are not going to be in a passage, which is what we usually do, just work through a text of Scripture, we're going to be bouncing around to a number of passages, so you'll need to sort of lick your fingers and turn from page to page as we go from passage to passage and text to text. But I think it's important, even if we weren't having the Biblical Counseling Conference, to affirm and assert and address this critical topic. You see, if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning from everyone here who believes that the Bible is sufficient for every spiritual need, my guess is that probably most present here, if not all, would raise their hands. That is because most Christians say they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. But when you look at Christianity as a whole, our actions prove that we really don't believe that the Bible is sufficient for every spiritual need. That's what concerns me and ought to concern all of us. There is a very important lesson from history that we should never lose sight of, and it is this. Whatever God values highly, Satan will seek to attack and destroy. We see this from the very beginning of time. God created the world. That's how the Bible opens. God created this universe. He created the world. He created man and woman, and he said it was good. So what did Satan do? He entered nature in the form of a serpent, and he tempted man to cause the fall of the human race. As a result, God had to curse man, woman, nature, his creation. Whatever God values highly... Satan will inevitably seek to destroy it in one way or another. And if he can't completely destroy it, then he will certainly seek to attack it, minimize it, do whatever he can to minimize the effectiveness of it. This is further illustrated as you keep on going through the book of Genesis. You not only see this in the opening three chapters, but in chapter 4, Cain murdered his brother. The first murder. Chapter 3, the fall of the human race. The very next chapter, we have a murder. Someone who was made in the image of God has his life ended unjustly. In chapter 4, Lamech broke God's divine pattern for marriage by taking two wives instead of one. Even though God had made it clear by creating one man, one woman, his intention was one man, one woman for life. And by the time you get to chapter 6, of Genesis, Satan has messed things up so badly that God has to wipe out the entire world with a flood. Every human being on planet earth, save eight, except for eight people. You see, Satan knew how much, Satan knows how much God values his creation and his creatures, and that is exactly why Satan went after those things. After the flood, Satan continued to attack the things that God values. One of the things that God values highly is the sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. 
So what does Satan do? He does everything he can to, uh, to pollute it or destroy it or ruin it. In Genesis 9.22, there are evil sexual thoughts and words. In Genesis 16, there is adultery. In Genesis 19, there is homosexuality. In Genesis 34, there is fornication and rape. In Genesis 38, there is incest and prostitution. In Genesis 39, there is seduction. All of these things take place before you even get out of the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis alone, we see that Satan is continually trying to attack, destroy, pollute, ruin things that God values highly. And that can be seen throughout the entire Old Testament, throughout the rest of Hebrew Scripture. We could just continue to multiply example after example after example. Then we come to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. The first chapter of Matthew records for us the birth of Jesus, God's dear, precious, beloved Son. So in the very next chapter, chapter 2, Satan moves Herod to kill all the babies in Bethlehem and all the babies in the surrounding districts in an attempt to kill the Christ child. Again, it illustrates the point that Satan seeks to destroy whatever God esteems highly. This is further seen in the life of God's people, whether it be God's Old Testament people, Israel, or His New Testament people, the church. As you study the Old Testament, you can see clearly Satan's attacks on Israel to destroy them. Sometimes the attacks were external, such as from the Philistines and oppressing armies, oppression from the nations around them. Sometimes the attacks were internal, such as leading the people to sin, to immorality, to idolatry. But the purpose was the same, whether they were external attacks or internal attacks. The purpose was to destroy the people of God. The same thing can be seen in the New Testament in relation to the church. The one book we have in the New Testament which unfolds for us the history of the church is the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we can see internal attacks from Satan as he seeks to cause sin in the family of God, in the body of Christ, division in the body. You see it everywhere in the book of Acts. There were also external attacks as the church was persecuted and killed by the Jewish people and the Roman authorities who opposed the gospel. And the reason Satan puts so much effort into harming or destroying the people of God is because Satan knows how highly God values his people. That's an age-old tactic. We all understand this. If you want to hurt someone, hurt someone that individual dearly loves. And there's a sense in which Satan can't hurt God. He can't really do anything to God. So what does he do? He tries to hurt the people that God loves, that God cherishes. Satan is continually seeking to attack things God values highly. And beloved, that is exactly what Satan has done and is doing today in relation to the Word of God. Psalm 138.2 says, God magnifies His Word above His name. And since God values His Word so highly, you can bet that Satan is doing all he can to attack the Word of God. And he does this in a number of ways. The front attack, the head-on attack from Satan, is from the liberal scholars and others who flatly deny the truthfulness 
of Scripture, the authority of the Bible, the accuracy of the Bible. They say the Bible has historical errors or scientific errors or geographical errors or psychological errors. That's the head-on attack. The Bible can't be trusted. It's full of mistakes and errors and contradictions. Years ago, I was on a panel here in Bozeman that consisted of other pastors, ministers, and community leaders. I don't even remember how this panel came together. And and thinking back, it's kind of shocking that this would even take place because the panel was assembled to debate whether or not, as community leaders, we wanted the blasphemous movie called The Last Temptation of Christ to be brought into our community to be shown in the theaters. It is a movie, by the way, that grossly distorts the true picture of Jesus as presented in the New Testament, especially the Gospels. There was a Methodist pastor or minister on the panel who said in our panel discussion that the movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, is what Jesus was really like, but the Gospel writers cleaned him up after he was gone. So what we have in the Gospels is sort of a sanitized version of Jesus that is not realistic. Beloved, that's that's an attack on the inerrancy of the Bible. That's an attack on the truthfulness, the accuracy of Scripture. To say that what the Gospel writers said about Jesus isn't really true in the the, the full picture. So that's the head-on attack, the direct attack. The rear attack, in my opinion... The rear attack today is coming from the charismatic movement and those in the movement who add visions, dreams, and other revelations so that the Bible is no longer unique. It's just, you know, you can either read your Bible to hear from God or you can just have God speak to you. It's just a a rear attack. And and understand that those in that movement are not intentionally attacking, attacking the Bible with these claims, but without realizing their claims do undermine Scripture. Because it's an attack on the singular authority of the Bible. The Bible is no longer the singular authority. This person's word from God, this person's vision from God, this person's revelation from God is just as authoritative as Scripture. Because it's from God. That's a rear attack. A head-on attack, just deny the truthfulness of the Bible. Rear attack, add a bunch of other stuff to it so it's no longer authoritative, really. But the attack from the inside is the one I want to talk about this morning. The, the, the attack from the inside is much more subtle, and that is the attack on the sufficiency of the Bible. This is more subtle than the other attacks, and it's just as dangerous, maybe more so. In subtle but clear ways in Christianity today, we are being told that we need the Scripture plus something else to be what God desires us to be. Now, in case you doubt that statement, let me give you some examples. It is a sad fact that pastors all across our nation spend more time, and I know this because this is my circle, right, other pastors. It's a sad fact that pastors all across our nation spend more time reading books on management than reading the Bible to try to become effective spiritual leaders. They read books like One Minute Manager in Search of Excellence, Corporate Culture, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, etc., etc. Not that it's wrong to read those kinds of books. I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong. But in a subtle way, pastors are saying by their actions, by their focus, by their priorities, that we can't really rely on the Bible alone for principles of effective spiritual leadership. Instead, we have to find out how Hewlett-Packard does it, or how Google does it, or how General Electric does it, etc. 
Granted, these companies and others may have discovered some good things about management. But what concerns me is is the subtle attitude that says Scripture isn't sufficient to make a man of God what he ought to be as a leader. Now, if you were to ask evangelical pastors if Scripture is sufficient, they would say yes, absolutely. But it often doesn't flesh out in their lives and in their ministries because by comparison, they spend more time reading other books than they do Scripture itself. Along these same lines, I get on a regular basis, I get flyers and brochures and invitations for leadership conferences. They just come my way all the time, uh, stacks of them. And one of the first things I do when I get one of these flyers or brochures is I open it up to see who is speaking, to see if there are any Bible expositors or accurate Bible teachers. Rarely is that the case. Rarely. Instead, you have all these leaders in business and in politics, and I find myself thinking, this is a leadership conference for pastors. Is anyone going to tell us what God says about leadership? That's what really matters. After all, in God in his word, when he, and he made no mistake with this, when he wants to paint a picture of a leader, he uses the picture in, in the Christian realm of a shepherd, not a CEO. So what does that say when you get pamphlets on leadership for pastors to attend these conferences and there are no Bible teachers, no expositors? Another area this can be seen in is the whole realm of church ministries. Most evangelical churches say they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. But some of the things going on in churches today seem to indicate otherwise. Churches today either say verbally or by their actions, well, you can't just present Scripture to people. You have to have some kind of fancy programs and flashy methods. In other words, the Bible is not able to do what programs and methods are able to do. You just can't present Scripture to people. So one of the most popular things to do today in the church is to show video clips of the latest Hollywood blockbuster, never mind the fact that the rest of the movie, the clip may be okay, but the rest of the movie is just debased, and you entice people, interest people to go see it and pollute their minds. But that's a thing to reel them in. Show them the clip of the Hollywood movie that's the greatest hit. So today we find evangelical churches everywhere committed to flash and methods, but not committed to teaching the Word of God accurately, authoritatively, effectively. Another area of church life that is disconcerting is the fact that you see churches throughout our land hiring psychiatrists instead of hiring Bible teachers. What that says is that although the evangelical church today claims to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, in practical ways it just doesn't work. This can also be seen when Christians have problems in their lives. Instead of turning to the Word of God, many Christians today feel they need psychoanalytical theory. So in practical ways, Christians are saying, the Bible isn't sufficient to deal with my marriage problems. It's not sufficient to deal with my self-esteem problems. It's not sufficient to deal with my, my discouragement problems. It's not enough to deal with my anger problems, my pornography problem, my lust problem. The Bible just isn't enough. So there's a credibility gap between what we say we believe and how it works out in our practical lives. Let me mention a few other specific illustrations to further drive home the point. I'm already in hot water anyway, so I might as well keep going, right? (laughs) 
right? So if you look at, at many of the evangel- evangelistic techniques being used today, you can see this same credibility gap. Today, there are many Christians who think that to be effective in evangelism, we need to have a rock star or a movie star or a sports star present the plan of salvation. I mean, you can't just give out the Word of God to unsaved people. In other words, God needs a rock star or a movie star or a sports star to do what the Bible doesn't have the power to do. That's saying Scripture is inadequate. It's ineffective. In fact, I remember hearing of a man who left a Bible teaching ministry so he could go into music, and he said this, direct quote, Once I really get big in music, then I'm going to be really effective in evangelism. Now what he's saying is that you can't be effective in evangelism unless you're a star. A music star, sports star, whatever it happens to be. Movie star. Another example closely related to this is the area of politics. A well-known evangelical said, quote, There will never be a revival in America until we have a Christian Congress, end quote. So this particular man left his pastorate and went to Washington, D.C. to lobby, trying to bring about a Christian Congress. Well, the message that comes from that kind of action is clear. We can accomplish through politics what we could never accomplish through teaching the Word of God. And yet this man would probably lay his life on the line for the truthfulness of Scripture. But for some reason, he doesn't believe that spending your life teaching the Word of God and preaching the Word of God and sharing the Word of God to people will have the same impact as spending your life lobbying. Beloved, either the Bible is sufficient to bring about revival or it isn't. A Christian Congress has no relationship to anything in the kingdom of God. But what a commentary that is on Christianity. That people actually believe you can accomplish through politics what you can't seem to accomplish through the Word of God. It reveals a perspective that says Scripture is just not sufficient. And that view has subtly crept into evangelical Christian thinking everywhere. Many, this is tragic, many solid Bible colleges and seminaries have thrown out their Bible curriculum and they've replaced it with psychology. And all of these extras, though, though I'm not implying that all of these examples I've used, all these illustrations are wrong in and of themselves, but all of these extras are seen today as helps to make up for the inadequacies of Scripture. Now, they may never be called that. Rare would be the Christian who would be willing to state Scripture is inadequate. It's not an overt, outright, verbal denial of the sufficiency of Scripture, but the message is still loud and clear. Whereas most Christians, most verbally affirm the sufficiency of Scripture, by their actions they say the Scripture really isn't sufficient in practical ways. You see this all the time in the area of, in the area of marriage. For instance, Christians will often say, I, I have heard this one. I've lost track of the number of times. I have heard people, I've had people sit right there across from me in, in my office and say, don't just tell me what the Bible says about marriage. Give me something practical. Well, what does that say? It says the Bible's not practical. It's not effective. It's not sufficient. So in, in theory, they affirm it, but in practice, they deny it. Maud Frazier Jackson once wrote this, quote, 
What if I say the Bible is God's holy word, complete, inspired, without a flaw? But let its pages stay unread from day to day and fail to learn therefrom God's holy law. What if I go not there to seek the truth of which I glibly speak for guidance in this earthly way? Does it matter what I say? And the answer is no. It doesn't matter what we say. Most Christians say they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Most verbally affirm the sufficiency of Scripture, but they don't read it, they don't study it, they don't memorize it, they don't turn to it for guidance, help, strength, input. So the actions speak louder than the words. There are churches which would fight for the inerrancy of Scripture. But when it comes to running the life of the church, they seldom consult the Word of God. Traditions are far more important to them than the Word of God. They will hold on to unbiblical practices such as infant baptism, congregational rule, government, and say, well, this is just part of our uh, tradition as a, as a faith. Just recently, I received a call from a dear young lady. She said, uh, Pastor, I I'm calling because I would like to have our uh, little infant daughter baptized. And I said, well, I appreciate your desire for good for your, your daughter, but we don't do infant baptism because there's not one verse in the Bible about it. The Bible doesn't say anything about it. There are no examples of it in the book of Acts. Everything you see in the Bible on baptism is believer baptism by immersion, those who have repented, placed faith in Christ. So we, we just don't do that. And she said, oh, okay, thank you. But I'm German Lutheran, so I'm going to find someone to baptize my baby. And I thought, that's it. That, that's, that summarized it. This is what the Bible says, but who cares? I'm just going to go with my tradition. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there's the, the charismatic movement with all its new revelation from God, God speaking to them through tongues, everyone receiving a word of knowledge. Beloved, that, that is an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. If the Bible is sufficient, if the Bible tells us what God wants us to know, then why does God need to give us more revelation? If the Bible is sufficient, why does God have to give messages to the church through tongues? If the Bible is sufficient, why do we need to receive some supposed special word of knowledge? You see, those things are nothing less than an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. So we're all guilty by our actions of undermining our supposed belief in the sufficiency of God's perfect Word. And those who don't read it, study it, memorize it, and follow it are just as guilty as those who overtly deny it. So what I want us to do for the balance of our time is to see what God Himself has to say about the sufficiency of His Word. And we're going to begin in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So turn with me in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, verse 14. Paul, writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy, he says, Timothy, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood. So what are you talking about, Paul, you know, to Timothy, what... What things that, that you've learned and, and so forth? Well, that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
Here Paul says the scripture is sufficient to make us wise unto salvation. And we would all agree with that. In the scripture we learn about Jesus, sin, the cross, repentance, faith, etc. So the scripture is sufficient to lead us to salvation. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those verses say the Word of God is comprehensively able to make us what God wants us to be. Scripture is sufficient. It is sufficient because verse 16 says it is God-breathed. It is the very breath of God. The Greek word here in verse 16 for inspiration is the Greek word theopneustos. Theos, neustos. Two Greek words. Theos, God. Neustos, breath. You put them together. Theopneustos, the breath of God. God breathed. And the picture is this. God exhaled. God exhaled and the result was Scripture. All of us in this room have probably gone up to a cold window glass on a cold winter day and you breathe on it. What happens? Well, right there in front of your breath sort of crystallizes or liquefies on the the pane of glass. That's this word. God breathed out and the result was not, you know, moisture on the glass, but rather this is what came out. Scripture. Scripture is sufficient because it's from God. It finds its source or origin in God. Psalm 138.2 says, You have magnified your word above all your name. Some translations, you've magnified your word according to all your name. In other words, God's character stands behind the character of his word. God places the character of his word on the same level as the character of his name. And if you know much theology at all, you know how important God's name is to him. All that he says about his name. So if God is sufficient, his word is sufficient. Go back to the left, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 5. Paul says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves, to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul asked a question. He said, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient? Well, here in chapter 3, verse 5, he gives the answer. We are not sufficient in and of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Beloved, God is sufficient. He's not inadequate in any way. In fact, turn over just a few pages to the right to chapter 9 and notice this great statement, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As we read verse 8, I want you to notice the superlatives that are used here. Verse 8, Paul says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now that's rather redundant. Seven times in this one verse, the sufficiency of God is set forth. Do you see any insufficiency in this verse? God is completely, totally, comprehensively sufficient. And as children of God, our resources come through the Word of God, energized in our lives by the Spirit of God. If God is sufficient, then His Word is sufficient. I want us to see this from the lips of our Lord Jesus himself. Keep going back to the left to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. 
John 17 is Jesus' great high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying for his men. His concern is that they would not throw in the towel when he dies the next morning and then later leaves them after the resurrection. He wants them to continue growing stronger. He wants them to become all that God wants them to be. So notice what he prays in verse 17. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Now he's praying this to the Father. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify means to set apart for God and his holy purposes. And here in this verse, Jesus himself indicates that the sanctification process is accomplished by and through the word of God. We don't need the Word of God plus man's resources to accomplish sanctification. We don't need the Word of God plus anything. The Word of God is sufficient. When we begin adding things to the Word of God, then we're no different than the cults. That's what they do. The cults say we need the Bible plus the Book of Mormon, the Bible plus the Pearl of Great Price, the Bible plus science and health with keys to the Scriptures, the Bible plus Watchtower Revelation, the Bible plus the teachings of Charles Taze Russell, the Bible plus the edicts of the Pope and the Holy Church. But here in verse 17, Jesus indicates that the Word of God alone is sufficient to make the man or woman of God all God wants him or her to be. In fact... To continue this theme of Jesus' own statements about Scripture, go back to the the previous gospel, Luke chapter 11. Look at Luke chapter 11. Beginning in verse 27. Verse 27. Luke 11, verse 27, Jesus said this, And it happened as he spoke these things, so Jesus is teaching, as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. Now that's a little awkward. I mean, can you imagine you're, you know, in a public setting and you're either teaching or you're walking along and someone yells out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. What are you going to say in response to that? You know what Jesus said? You know what was on the forefront of his thinking? was right in his heart. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What a monumental statement. Do you think Jesus valued the word of God? Do you think Jesus saw the scripture as sufficient? There's no doubt about it. I mean, this is what was right there on the edge of his thinking, right in, right in the, the tip of his tongue, He knew exactly how to respond to that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And notice what he went on to say in the following verses, verse 29. And while the crowds were were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment in this generation, with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus condemned that generation. 
Because rather than seeking to hear the word of God, which he just said in verse 28, they were seeking signs, miracles, and wonders. Does it sound familiar? They wanted to see power. This reminds me of so much of Christianity today. The Christians talk about power, the power of positive thinking, the power of self-actualization, the power of verbal affirmation, the power of miraculous signs, the, the power in the, the word of faith, the power of the tongue. But in Mark 12, 24, Jesus indicated that to know the Scripture is to experience the power of God. The power of God is knowing the Scriptures. When Satan tempted Jesus, what did Jesus do about it? You know. How did he handle it? Did he say, this is what a lot of people would give him advice today to say, I bind you, Satan. Did Jesus say anything like that? No. He said three times, it is written. It is written. It is written. He quoted Scripture. Beloved, the power isn't in some mystical mind game. The power isn't in verbal affirmation. The power is in the Word of God, knowing it, believing it, living it. There's another passage here in Luke's Gospel I want us to look at in which Jesus supported very strongly the sufficiency of Scripture. Turn over a few pages to the right to chapter 16. Verse 19. There was a certain rich man, this is Jesus teaching, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Now you know, because you know your Bible, that that's just a phrase to say, it's the way Jewish people said the word of God. Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. Let them hear it. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, if they see a miracle, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, just say it this way. If they don't hear the word of God, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. What an incredible statement. If they won't listen to the word of God, they won't believe if someone were to rise from the dead. And of course, that is exactly what played out in our Lord's own life. He rose from the dead, and the skeptics were still skeptics. If they won't listen to the Word of God, they won't believe, regardless of the exciting miracle that's set forth. Now, compare that statement with what Peter Wagner said at the American Association of Bible Colleges Convention. He said this, and I quote, The simple gospel is no longer adequate without signs and wonders. Can you believe that? 
The simple gospel is no longer adequate without signs and wonders. Beloved, the simple gospel couldn't be any more adequate. It couldn't be any more powerful. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God to, unto salvation to everyone who believes. That's how powerful the simple gospel is. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And with that, we're right back to where we started in 2 Timothy 3.15, which says the scriptures are able to give us the wisdom that leads to salvation. Beloved, there is no inadequacy in Scripture. Scripture is sufficient because it's the breath of God. It's the very Word of God. It contains the very words of God. Let's go to John 15 as we close this morning. From Luke to the right over to John chapter 15. When Jesus was leaving his men with some final words... In the Upper Room Discourse, he placed tremendous emphasis on his word when it comes to the fruitful Christian life. I want you to notice again what our own Lord said about this subject. Verse 3, John 15. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Okay, Jesus, how do we abide in you? That seems somewhat ethereal, mystical. What, give, give us a little more detail. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. But this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus says here, if we want to be fruitful, if we want to be effective, then we need to take Scripture as seriously as Jesus took Scripture. His example and his teaching ought to convince us of the sufficiency of the Word of God. And I remind you, it is sufficient to make the man or woman of God all that God wants us to be, and it is sufficient to take the man or woman who is outside of Christ, who is in unbelief, and lead that person to salvation. And my guess is, in a crowd this size, there are some present who are in that category. You, you're, not a, you're, you're not in salvation. You have not allowed the Word of God to lead you to salvation. In the Word, we learn about Jesus, sin, judgment, Salvation, repentance, faith. Scripture can lead you to salvation, the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing this morning, I would encourage you just to reflect on some of the thoughts that we have considered this morning. These many passages and a number of them, as you, you've seen, are in the Gospels. So it's, 
what Jesus himself had to say about the Word of God. Jesus' own attestation to the power, the sufficiency, the effectiveness of the Word of God. May we take Scripture as seriously as Jesus took it. He read it. He studied. He memorized it. He quoted it when he was tempted. He didn't bind Satan with some supposed mystical statement, words that have power inherent supposedly. No, he quoted Scripture because Jesus affirmed by his example and by his teaching the power of the precious Word of God. Do you believe that this morning? Really believe it? In action, not just in affirmation? Our lives answer the question better than our words to state whether we really believe in the adequacy, the power, effectiveness, and sufficiency of God's Word. And again, I would say, if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Scripture is able to lead you to salvation. Hear the message of Scripture, that you are a sinner who deserves judgment. But Jesus took that judgment in your place, on your behalf, on the cross, so that you don't have to experience the wrath of God, but rather can experience the grace of God. If you will repent and turn to Jesus Christ in simple, humble, childlike faith. That's the message of Scripture. And if you will heed it, it will lead you to salvation. So, Father, use these passages that we've looked at this morning, beginning in 2 Timothy, where we read that Scripture is sufficient to lead us to salvation and then sufficient to make us all that you want us to be. And then concluding here in John 15 where Jesus says, you need to abide in me, my words. You need to make sure my words abide in you. You're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. And how he prayed to you, Father, a couple chapters later in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So may we as your people experience greater sanctification in the days ahead through the power of your word. And we pray this morning for anyone who's gathered with us who cannot really call you Father because that man or woman is not really a child of God, no relationship with Jesus Christ. May your spirit use the truth of your word that we've seen this morning, even though only briefly in relation to salvation, May your spirit be pleased to use that, to draw that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, to faith in Jesus Christ, to salvation, to come to know him and love him, in whose name we pray. Amen.